Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the, uh, the dark force here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. Iron Radio is brought to you in part by www.bingcolorprint.com. Business cards, flyers, banners, postcards, DVD packages, and more can be found there. Occasionally you'll see Phil make a comment on our Iron Radio listeners page. That's not spam. That might be something that you can save at bingcolorprint.com. Thanks. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist, and I'm a bodybuilding enthusiast. Hey, folks. Rob Fortress-Fortney, uh, former editor at Muscle Mag International, journalist, former competitive bodybuilder, and powerlifter. And this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, um, founder of liftforhope.org, and competitive athlete in Highland Games, powerlifting, and strongman. Awesome. And today we have with us a... Uh, nutritional scientist who many listeners I think are familiar with, Lane Norton. Uh, Lane, why don't you just maybe introduce yourself to everyone? Uh, okay, well, uh, my background in um, this industry is um, I have a um, educational wise, I have a, a bachelor's in biochemistry and I did my PhD in nutritional science. Um, just graduated with that in May from the University of Illinois. My uh, area of specialization is in um, muscle protein metabolism. So that's kind of my nerdy background. Um, and then my, my bodybuilding, um, or, you know, the I like to call it the application background, um, is uh, I'm a competitive uh, natural bodybuilder. I, can, I actually earned a pro card in, in drug-free bodybuilding back in 2006, and I just recently um, st- did my first series of natural pro shows um, this this past fall, or this fall. Oh, wow. And uh, and then, uh, yeah, done three shows and have another one, co- have one more coming up. And then um, also have uh, competed in powerlifting, um, set uh, a couple couple records in, in – uh, in a few different organizations, although that's not <laughs> anybody who knows powerlifting knows that there's so fraction that most anybody can set a record. But I was ranked in uh, powerlifting watches. Uh, I think my total was in the top 20 for my weight class in the USA across all different organizations la- uh, last year. So um, I like to get my kind of I, I got I got into this industry or I got into academia from bodybuilding and from lifting because I was so. When I was younger, I'd pick a magazine, and one magazine says one thing, and one magazine says another thing. Yeah. And uh, I just got, you know, so frustrated with trying to decipher what was real and what wasn't. And so I was already in sciences as an undergraduate, and I thought, you know, biochemistry probably gave me the strongest backbone in terms of a base for scientific knowledge to then go on for whatever I would I would do later and. Um, you know, protein metabolism just s- s- something that spoke to me, and I got the opportunity to study under uh, Dr. Don Lehman, who did a lot of the. Uh, he's one of the guys who really brought branched amino acid research to the forefront. Oh yeah, and uh, pr- and protein research to the for- forefront. So um, that was really uh, um, you know looking back on it, 
I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time, but really quite fortunate to get the opportunity to study under him. So, um, and as all those things kind of evolved together, I got more serious about my bodybuilding, got more serious about my academics, and here we sit. I kind of, I kind of do a little bit of everything, I guess. Yeah. So with your doctorate now, did you open your own business? Is that what you're doing then, or, or uh, are you? Do you have a part-time faculty position or something? Are you really focused on your bodybuilding career? Well, there's no, there's not really any money to be made from competing in bodybuilding. Even you know, um, a lot of people will bag on natural bodybuilding and say, "Well, there's no money in natural bodybuilding," and I'll, I'll correct them and say, "No, there's no money in bodybuilding." Period. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't make money off the the prize money. But I, I actually, when I was in, when I was in graduate school, I actually um, started kind of on the side, just working with people, getting them ready for shows, because um, I was already you know, answering a lot of emails every day, just all the articles I have out there, I tend to get a large volume of mail and I was already answering a lot of emails and I don't mind, I didn't mind answering, you know, shorter questions, but then when people started asking me to write my routines and those, those sorts of things, that takes a lot of time. So I started charging people kind of as a way just to validate my time for that. And that kind of grew into a full-time business. By the time I was finishing up graduate school, I mean, I was probably working, you know, your normal lab day and then in between assays, you know, <laughs> answering emails and those sorts of things. But, uh, yep. you know, um, I was, I was probably doing another, you know, four, six, eight hours of work, you know, interspersed where I could on my business. And so by, I kind of had a nice transition where by the time I was done just writing my thesis, I was also, transitioning into having a full-time business and now it is a full-time business um it's called BioLane LLC and um so basically uh you know I guess the best description of what I do what I I guess I would call myself a physique coach you know mm -hmm. um basically or or even a, you know I work mostly I'd say 50% of people I work with are probably competitors and the other 50% are real serious uh maybe not wanting to compete but definitely you know, very uh, serious about pursuing their goals and very goal oriented. I don't, I'd say like beginners and intermediates are probably about five to 10% of the people I work with. Um, so it's, uh, it's something that's very fun for me. It doesn't feel like work. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I respect people who are in academia a lot because it's an extremely difficult um, way to make a living. And people act, you know, you'll see here, some people say, oh, I got a cushy academic position. I'm like, man, there's nothing cushy about academia. It is very, very, <laughs> no, it is no. very difficult. And, um, you know, it's just, I like I said, I have a lot of respect for people to do that. But after being involved with it for six years as a, as a, um, as a graduate student, I just really felt it wasn't something I was real interested in. I'm still interested in being uh, kind of like um, I do consult with a few labs on research um, and, you know, give my input and those sorts of things. But uh, as far as actually writing grants, I mean, man, I just have no interest in doing those sorts of things. So, yeah. um, you know, all the respect in the world to people do who do because people just don't understand how hard that stuff is. No, there's there's no doubt. I mean, one of the reasons that we started this podcast, gosh, it's been almost two years ago now, was because of my academic background, you know, and then Phil and Rob have the powerlifting background, and Rob and I have a bodybuilding background, so you're sort of a perfect guest here because you're 
<laughs> it's a, it's the same. You're one of us, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, the the geeky guy who happens to lift weights. Yeah, that's exactly uh, it's exactly where I fit. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so now you mentioned email and, and blowing your company into sort of a full time sort of thing. Uh, now you have a pretty big presence on bodybuilding.com. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I've been. I, it's, it's funny. It's kind of a, I don't want to call it a rags to riches type story because that's not a valid comparison, but it's kind of interesting how I came up. I, I started posting on their message board as a, I think I was like a sophomore in college. And, uh, so about nine years ago. Yeah. Nine years ago. And, um, this is when their message board was like, I mean, now it's a huge message board. It's like the third biggest forum of anything on the internet. I yeah, think there's I've seen only like, yeah. it's like 2 million people. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I think half people on there don't even lift weights. It's just, <laughs> it's such a big popular message board, you know? Um, but anyway, this is what back when their message board was like 500 members and it was a scrolling message board. So if you posted something in June and it's now September, you got to scroll all the way back. You know, it was very, very primitive. Um, but I just started posting on there. And kind of got a reputation as a guy who, you know, had a little background and, and kind of knew what he was talking about, even though looking back, I didn't know what I was talking about about some things. But, uh, you know, I started writing these little, like, little short articles and posted them on message boards. And people kept saying, oh, you want to talk to the main site and, and ask them, you know, if they want to, if they put your articles up because these are good. I said, no, 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 you know, they they don't want me and... Uh, so finally I did, I sent them in some articles and they said, wow, these are great. You know, we'll put them up and I've been with them ever since. And they've been great to me in terms of trying to help further my popularity and further my career. And, uh, we've always worked really well together. And probably the thing that, um, got me the most notoriety was doing the, uh, the web series with them, uh, the inside the life of a natural pro bodybuilder. That thing got ridiculously popular, um, you know, uh, I think there was one episode we had where there was over a hundred thousand views for it. Wow! So that's um, video. That was video. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a video series, and we did a uh, you know, the main series did like twenty videos or over twenty videos, and then we had several spinoffs of that series where like my wife was competing, and there was a six episode series about her competing, and then there was a Team Norton series where it was like they followed some of my clients who were competing and. I think all told, we've had like almost 40 episodes or something like that. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really, really popular. They, they told me it, it's definitely one of the most popular videos on their website. So I've been extremely fortunate to have those kinds of opportunities present themselves to me. And, um, and you know, just for whatever reason, people happen to be interested. So, uh, again, uh, you know, bodybuilding.com has been uh, – you know, without without throwing too many plugs out there, uh, they they've been great for me, and they certainly um, have have been a large part in uh, me getting more notoriety. Cool, yeah, very cool. Uh, as far as your competing, you talked about sort of being a you know almost old school, and that you do power and bodybuilding. What are you mentioned some of your totals and whatnot? I bet Rob and Phil are thinking, you know, you know, what are those? So what do you, <laughs> what, you know, what are you proud of? Like totals or uh, different lifts? Yeah. Um, so my best totals in comp, my my best individual lifts in competition, um, squats. I did. Uh, 
I, I, I was in the 220 weight class and I compete raw and uh, did a 584 squat with uh, knee sleeves and a belt only and then um, did a 700-pound uh, deadlift and then uh, my best bench press was 364 in competition, which isn't great, but I had a pec tear two years ago that got surgically repaired and that bench press was only about a year afterwards. So next time I compete, I anticipate that being much higher. But uh, so my best, my best total was like 1603, I think. Um, it wasn't, I didn't have my best day that day. Um, and I only ended up hitting like a 655 deadlift that day, but my, my, that was the day I hit the, 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 my high squat, the, my high squat bench press. But the day I hit 700 on deadlift, um, I only totaled like 1598 cause I went really conservative on bench cause it was closer to when I had the surgery. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say most proud of is probably the 700 pound deadlift. I mean, that was, you know, you go back in a time machine five years ago and tell me, Oh, you'll deadlift 700 pounds. I'd have been like, ah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a, those are big numbers. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, you know, uh, I've always been good at deadlifts. You know, I didn't really train them a whole lot until I decided I was going to do powerlifting. And I've always trained heavy. I, I've always thought, you know, training heavy is an important component, even of hypertrophy. Um, and I, I, I got, interested in powerlifting because, uh, you know, I competed in 2000, I, I started going to graduate school in 2004 and competed again in 2006 where I won my pro cards. But man, it, it honestly probably set me back six months in my graduate studies, maybe even more than that. And I just told myself, I'm like, I'm not competing in bodybuilding until I'm done with my PhD again. Cause it was just too much. Um, you know, the diet and doing the cardio and, you know, if you're in the off season, I'm dedicated in the off season, but you just can't afford to miss any time when you're getting ready for a show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, so, but you know, it'd been four, it'd been three years since I competed in anything and I'm just a competitive person. And I was like, well, you know, I don't have to do cardio or, or strict diet for powerlifting. I don't have to cut weight or anything. So, Let's compete in powerlifting and see what happens. And when I started really focusing on that, uh, you know, having, you know, without even like working my deadlift, um, I went in and did like 585 for a double uh, one day when I first got started in the powerlifting training. And so it, it, it really shot up pretty quickly once I started focusing on it. But probably what I was most proud of is um, I tore my pec in, in 2008. And uh, it was actually a, a, a tear in the muscle. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't a, most uh, pec tears are tendon off the bone tears where they can, they're pretty high rate of success for surgery. Sure, yeah. I completely tore mine, but it was inside the muscle tissue. And so very low rate of success with surgery. Most surgeons don't even want to do surgery, but fortunately I found a guy who was really very skilled and, um, he uh, repaired it, did a fantastic job, but it was a long recovery. But uh, I actually did my first powerlifting meet 11 months after my after my surgery and pulled uh, 645. So I guess that's one of the things I was most proud of, that it was, you know, something that people were telling. I mean, I was reading online and people were like, oh, he's done. He'll never do anything again. And, you know, a pec tear for bodybuilding is pretty much a death sentence because it totally throws off your symmetry. Um but so to come back and and uh, and and do that was was pretty cool. Right. 
Well, in a way, I guess shape-wise, it was almost fortunate that it was a muscular, not a tendinous tear, because then you didn't get the retraction and the deformity and all that kind of stuff. Oh, no, it, it, it retracted because it completely tore. It completely oh, oh, okay. But it was in, instead of being the tendon away, it was the in the actual muscle tissue. So it did it did retract. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. So yeah, it was it was not a good it was not a good deal. That must and, have been scary looking for somebody, you know, to reattach it because you you know you you got that like two week period before the scar tissue is going to start to mess you up and you need someone to be willing to you know suture that back down so that, you get some shape retained. You know, actually the the what happened was um, the night I tore it, I I knew I tore it. I mean, I, I've had people describe to me what it, it felt like. Um, I was going down on a bench press and I had my elbows flared out, you know, because that's how people teach you to bench press in bodybuilding. And uh, I got to the bottom and started, just started to press up and it felt like, uh, I felt like a hot streak go across my chest and then it felt like saran wrap tearing. And uh, so I, I, I was very sure I had torn it, um, but I went to the ER and they don't, I mean, most ER docs, they don't. This is actually a really rare injury for most doctors. Oh yeah, and they're they're having me move it around and stuff, and I'm, uh, you know, how painful is this? I'm like, well, it's just real tight. It's not. It actually, I was surprised when it happened. It wasn't that painful. It was just really, really tight and inflamed, and um, and he's like, well, no, I think you just strained it, and I was like, oh, okay. And the next morning, I woke up and there was no bruising, and so I'm like, well, maybe I did just strain it. Um, and it never bruised, never any discoloration or anything. Which oh, is, it never did, huh? No, it didn't bleed arterially. But That's surprising, so, yeah. So it took me a week before, once the swelling had gone down until I actually saw the disfigurement. And then I said, okay, well, yeah, I definitely tore it. So I went and got, got an MRI. So by the time it was actually time, I found a guy and we'd done a consult and it was time for surgery. It was 17 days after I'd torn it. So it, there was some, you know, scar tissue was already starting to form, you know, um, and the doctor, the surgeon, um, Dr. Michael Corcoran, uh, he, he said when he, he opened me up, he's like, he's like, you know, you didn't bleed arterially. It didn't look real nasty from the outside. He's like, when we opened you up, he said, your peck was a mess. Mm. He said, it took us 45 minutes just to find your tendon to reattach it, um, because when it when it snapped, apparently my tendon had snapped back onto my delt and had scarred onto my delt. Oh and gosh! They actually, had, they actually had to cut it off of my delt and pull it down. And uh, so it was funny because when I woke up, I'm like, "Man, my yeah, my chest is sore. I expect that, but damn, why does my shoulder hurt so much?" You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, but they were so worried about it, you know. A normal pec tear, a tendon tear off the bone, they have you doing rehab, you know, sometimes even a couple of days into it. Um, he He's like, I don't want you moving that thing for weeks. You know, so they had me they had me wearing like a, a cuff to cuff my arm to my side, and I didn't get to take that thing off for six and a half weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he told me, he's like, I'm scared. Oh. So it was, I was very fortunate. Um it repaired well, and man, you can't even tell now. Um, it's just—it uh, looks like this incision's even tiny. I mean, he was really unbelievable in terms of the surgery and, and afterwards. So, got uh, got real lucky with that for sure. You know, your story is is good for people to hear. It's scary how similar that is. When I I tore my triceps, I had a total triceps tendon rupture, and Ugh. same thing. ER doc. 
you know, Clueless sent me home with ibuprofen and said it was a strain. Oh, yeah. You know, I got an MRI scan. Luckily, I know some, you know, orthopedic surgeons and uh, they're, you know, like, yeah, it's a complete rupture. You know, let's get the tack back down right away and this and that. And I mean, it's just amazing. So people who are listening, you know, if you if you're convinced you had a tear, if you if you hear that sort of tearing sound or it's and again, for me, it wasn't. Pop. Super, yeah, it wasn't real painful. Uh but, you know, stay persistent. Talk to a sports medicine physician. You know, go to an orthopedist and, and get, an, get an MRI scan so you can know for sure. Because especially in bodybuilding, you need that reattachment. You're never going to be the same. You're just not. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, I, I read a lot of medical journals when during that period where I was trying to get surgery. And, you know, the, the recovery for people who don't get surgery for a tear, it's like, you know, maybe 40% make it back to functionality in terms of what they were before. And that's normal people. That's not even athletes. Athletes will never get back that kind of functionality. But if you have surgery, it's, you know, usually pretty darn successful. Right. So, um, you know, but the sooner you get it done, so like you said, don't, don't take no for an answer. Cause those ER docs, I mean, let's be honest, they just want to get you in and get you out. Sure. You're not, you're not bleeding all over their table. You're not in any kind of immediate danger. They're, kind of going to tell you what they want you to hear. There's no benefit for them saying, oh, yeah, you tore it, you know. Right. They, they figure if it's bad enough, you'll go to your doctor and, and they'll, you know, tell you to go get an MRI. So if you think you tore it, go get an MRI. And as far as doctors go, you know, your best bet is finding somebody who works with athletes in your area and finding, you know, the guy I worked with was a surgeon for the Chicago Bears. This is when I was living in Illinois. So he had done a lot of uh, he had done a lot of pec tear reattachments. He did one on their fullback. He but he said you know he's like yours was the worst I had to do because it was so difficult just because of where your tear was. Right. So how do you look now? I mean, is 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 there any difference from before? Uh, I can tell a difference just because you know I've looked at myself every day for you know ever, <laughs> yeah. ever since I've been a narcissist and in bodybuilding, <laughs> you know, but. Um, the judges at my shows, a lot of them judged me as an amateur and now as a professional. They said, you know, we were looking for, we knew you tore it because we'd read about it and we were looking for it and we couldn't tell. So I was very fortunate. I mean, there's no size difference. There's, it's just, it's just little tiny things I can tell the difference about it. It looks just slightly different, but really, I mean, uh, the guy, the surgeon, Anybody who's listening, if you're in the Chicago area or Midwest and you have, you know, muscle tear or, you know, any kind of shoulder, chest, whatever, uh, Dr. Michael Corcoran at Oak Orthopedics in Kankakee, he's the guy you want to go see because he was awesome. Cool. Hey, Phil. Yeah. What have you torn? I, you're like Mr. Tear, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've torn. The main one was my bicep, and like you guys said, I mean, it was it was essentially pain-free. It sounded like somebody snapped a rope. Yeah. Uh, and that's the ER. Well, if you don't hurt, you're fine. Um, but at the same time, my bicep was sitting up on top of my shoulder, and I was like, well. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, and then some little things, shoulder stuff. You know, I, I tore my empress and uh, crap like that. Yeah. But, you know, you're... I you're all power, right? Phil, you don't have any bodybuilding aspirations, do you? No. Yeah. So kind yeah, of hell, see, hell with see, it those for are you, like, right? <laughs> Those are like badges of honor in powerlifting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Phil's got natural proportion and symmetry. 
<laughs> well, the thing is, due to my, I mean, because I was ran over and had my leg pretty much tore off, if you look at me, I I am not going to ever be symmetrical. I have one glute that's half the size of the other and one spinal erector that took over, and it's twice the size of the other. Okay. So, I mean, I'd have to play the asymmetry card and just go as the most asymmetrical bodybuilder. And yep. <laughs> that's how I turned to one side. Yeah. There you go. Now, I actually, uh, I actually, um, I had read a lot about guys popping their biceps on deadlift when I was getting back into powerlifting because I was doing some deadlifting and I was posting my videos up on, on YouTube and people were like, oh, you just tore your pec. Aren't you afraid of tearing your bicep? And I'm like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Tearing biceps. So I, I Google, you know, bicep tear deadlift. And sure enough, there's tons of videos of guys oh, yeah. popping their biceps on, de- on the underhand on deadlift. And so I'm like, ah, crap, you know, because I don't want to go tear a bicep. So I actually started using a hook grip uh, on deadlift, which which actually I probably get more comments on that uh, at my meets than the actual weights I'm lifting because people are, you know, 700 pounds with a hook. I mean, there's guys that have done a lot more. I mean, Miguel Kukliab does like over 900 pounds. But a lot of people say, did you just double overhand that? I'm like, no, no, no. It's a... It's a hook grip, but it's definitely useful for people. You know, if you're worried about that sort of thing, um, hook grip can uh, can can possibly save your biceps. But that that is extraordinarily painful, isn't it? You know, I think I'm just lucky. I have skinny thumbs and long fingers, so I'm I I've actually I only use it on my single rep maxes because for like multiple reps, it gets jarred loose after every rep because when the weight hits the ground. So I actually use straps on my. It's funny because I'm war- I'll warm up in the warm up room. Um, the, my my hook grip it works better the less I use it. My grip is strong enough; it never comes undone, especially when I'm using chalk. But I found it's actually stronger the less I use it because my hands don't get all calloused up. It works better when the tissue's soft. And uh, so I'll be you know my meets I'm warming up in the the, the warm up rooms and guys keep coming. I'm wearing straps and guys will come up to me and oh, you know you can't use those in the meet right? And I'm like. No, really? Oh, man, I guess I'm totally screwed, you know? Um, so, so then, you know, that kind, of throws, that kind of throws them for a loop a little bit. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's like, no, I'll, I'll be fine. But, yeah, so I, um, it's actually never caused me a whole lot of pain. I mean, you know, obviously after a real heavy one, you know, your fingers kind of burn a little bit. But I've never had a whole lot of pain for it. But I think, I think uh, you know, if you have – big old round thumbs and short stumpy fingers, it's probably not going to be the grip for you. Well, you but, know what? You just described me because I, I gave that <laughs> the hook grip a, a really good whirl about um, a year ago for several weeks, and I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was ex- beyond excruciating. It yeah, just, I mean, if you, It just wasn't working for me at if all. If you I stick mean, to it, Rob, like, you'll kill all those nerves. You just <laughs> you know. <kill> <laughs> This, listeners, told. don't listen to Phil on everything he says. <laughs> Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. <laughs> yeah, he just said he only had one butt cheek, so I uh, want to be careful about listening to him. <laughs> For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th, 2011, at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much, much more. So... 
For more information, go to www.theissn.org. No, you know, I think uh, for whatever reason, I just got lucky in terms of how my, my hands are structured. And I got, uh, you know, like I said, real long fingers and real skinny thumbs, so I can really get my full hand around that. And uh, just never had a whole lot of pain. But, you know, it obviously, for some people, it's not going to work. So... Is that a dog? Yeah, those are my. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Those are my <laughs> my brats in the uh, background, and my neighbor is a freaking idiot, and they walk their dog out in front of our our door every single day, and it's like just stay in your yard. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I apologize. Little now we got a background track. Yeah. Great yeah. Well, okay. Hang on a second. Shut up. <laughs> okay, we're good. <laughs> Sometimes you just gotta yell at him. Shut I'm up, sure or Daddy's Pete, gonna eat I, you. <laughs> I hope nobody from PETA is listening to this phone call. <laughs> I might, get, I might get some angry emails. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what. Let's let's move on to the topic of the day. Actually, that became a bit more of a war stories than anything. But uh, what I want to talk about a little bit today, of course, is you know. Lo- Obviously, leucine because Lane, you have a, a big background in that. I've been reading Don Lehman's work for forever, and some of your work too, actually. And so, I just wanted to kind of touch on this because I think leucine is—it's one of those things that, um, you know, gosh, I remember when I was in grad school in the early '90s, you could read about the protein synthetic effects of leucine even then. And then it seemed like in the 90s, branch chains started getting poo-pooed, in, at least in some level, like in sports nutrition textbooks and things like that, because they didn't do things like boost immediate acute performance, let's say, or you know stuff like that. And then there was almost this renaissance, it seemed like to me, where people started looking at branch chains and especially leucine again. And, and now there's just all kinds of information about leucine. And so that's what I wanted to ask you about. So can you give listeners a little history of leucine and you know what your interests are in that amino acid uh yeah sure actually because i um uh <laughs> i don't want to say our lab was uh, don layman's lab was the ones who you know discovered this whole thing but um tracy anthony and josh anthony um they were uh before they got married they were working in dr layman's lab together this is like uh probably late 90s um and they they were looking at different studies and protein and effects on protein synthesis, and they they kept noticing this correlation between um, post meal plasma leucine levels and protein synthesis. That it seemed to be a, a pretty strong uh, correlation. And uh, they went to do their postdocs at Penn State under uh, 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 Dr. Jefferson there, his lab. Mm-hmm. And uh, they told that that's a more biochemical based lab. Uh, Dr. Lehman's lab is more metabolic, more uh, nutrition based. Um, and uh, they told Jefferson, they said, you know, we, we really think it's leucine. And uh, Tracy told me that uh, Jefferson kind of laughed at it the first time. Said, oh, that's nonsense. And uh, I, I don't know exactly what the story is. I might have gotten it kind of mixed up. But basically, you know, he, he was a little pretty skeptical about it. And then, of course, you know that uh, there was probably two dozen studies that came out of Penn State about leucine, sure enough, yeah. uh, that Tracy and Josh did and really showed that, uh, 
you know, leucine will stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Um, and uh, interestingly, uh, uh, Dr. Garlic, who's also uh, Peter Garlic, he, uh, for anybody who knows any history of protein metabolism, this guy's like the god of protein synthesis. Like he developed all the techniques that measure protein synthesis, all these tail vein injections, flooding dose isotopes. Um, he actually ended up going to uh, transferring to Illinois when I got there. So I got to work with Layman and Dr. Garlic. So it was like unbelievable yeah. timing for me. Geek heaven. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, Garlic is a great guy and uh, very helpful. And um, he uh, he did a study where he actually kind of said, okay, well, leucine does this, but what if we just, you know, you're, you're in, in most in the most of these studies, they were given pretty high doses, you know, even if it was orally, it was pretty high doses. So he, he, he gave the rest of the amino acids too and wanted to see, okay, well, you know, is it just some kind of thing where you flood the system and you get a response? And found that it was it was just leucine. Leucine was the one that was responsible for muscle protein synthesis. And so our interest when I got to uh, Lehman's lab was, okay, can we replicate this when we're using complete meals? Like everybody's shown that there's kind of a dose response if you give it orally with a gavage to rats or, you, you know, you give it, um, you know, in a powder or what have you. But most people don't consume it that way. I mean, you know, bodybuilders will because they'll, you know, they would eat dirt if you told them it would make them grow. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, but we were, we were more interested in, okay, you know, if we, my, fir my first study was uh, giving, uh, you know, we gave ice nitrogenous doses at three different levels of wheat protein versus whey protein and looked at protein synthesis and found that, you know, whey was better than wheat at every single level that we, we fed it. And, um, you know, that it was basically the, the difference was, was whey was better at, at increasing plasma leucine and that the, you know, um, so for like the 10, we gave a diet that was 10% wheat and whey, 20% wheat and whey and 30% wheat and whey. Um, and we, we supplemented the, uh, wheat group, uh, because there's, it's, there's, it's deficient in some of the amino acids. So we supplemented it to make it, you know, a high quality protein, quote unquote, and, um, but still found that there were differences in protein synthesis. And so, you know, we thought that was pretty, nobody had ever kind of looked at it from that angle, um, of, of leucine content and protein sources. And then we went and replicated that with a few more protein sources. We compared wheat, soy, egg, and whey and found that, you know, there was basically a, um, a dose dependent response of the leucine content of these protein sources. And, Furthermore, that there's a break point, you know, we found a break point where basically you can feed a certain amount of, of protein, a certain amount of leucine, and you actually won't get a response in plasma leucine, but you reach a break point at which once you finally get there, you get about an 80% increase in plasma leucine. So it's not linear. It's not like you give a little bit of leucine and you get a little bit of rise in plasma leucine. It, it, there's there's a defined break point and you got to hit that break point. You got to get an increase in plasma leucine in order to get an increase in muscle protein synthesis. And okay, every group, good, yep, good to know. In every in every group we measured, um, if you didn't get an increase in post meal plasma leucine, there was no increase in muscle protein synthesis. So um, that was pretty interesting, and we designed a long term experiment around that, around giving you know, meals that would either hit that threshold or not hit that threshold, even though the total protein intake would be the same throughout the day. And we actually, 
I can't share too much of the details because we're still trying to get it published. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, we found differences in body composition when you fed these diets over long periods of time. Can you and be vague, Lane? Can you be vague at least? And and what's what's this tipping point? What's the dose, or do you not want to go there? <clears throat> well, we did it. In, we did it in rats, so obviously the dose is, is different from what it's going to be in humans. Yeah, but in humans. To get an increase in plasma leucine, which is what you need to get an increase in, in muscle protein synthesis, it looks like around two grams, two to three grams of leucine. So you're looking at, you know, any, depending on your protein source, you know, 20 to 30 grams of, of protein at a meal. Um, now, I, I, I can go ahead and address something. You guys, I'm sure, are familiar with Stuart Phillips' work, correct? Oh, sure. Yeah, so he, he did a study and he found um, that basically fed different doses of egg protein. And found that, um, you know, the conclusion was that 20 grams of egg protein will maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. That's right. You know, I was so glad when he did that because for ages, students would ask, hey, how much protein do I need after I work out? And I'd be like, uh, somewhere between 6 and 40. And, and you know, for listeners, that study was very cool that Stu and his group did. In fact, we had one of Stu's grad students on here, Nick Bird, just a couple uh-huh. of weeks ago. But – uh you know, they fed five, and then they doubled it to ten. Then they doubled that right. to twenty, and then they went up to forty. And they didn't really see the plateau until about twenty. They didn't see much more at forty. So finally, now we can sort of say, at least with egg, it looks like about twenty grams is is optimal for these guys. So, yeah, but I do I do want to kind of expand on that a little bit because a lot of people were saying, oh, well, you only need a hundred grams of protein a day if you want to maximize muscle protein synthesis because you know five meals a day or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to temper that by saying for the average person who's looking to maximize their health, that's probably right. But if you're talking about an elite athlete or a bodybuilder who 1% of difference makes a difference um, and you're not worried about, oh, well, protein's hard to get in and it's kind of hard to eat all that protein. I mean, you don't care. You just want the best response. If you look at that study, there's actually like a 10% difference between the 20% and 40% group. Now, it's not statistically different, Okay. But statistically different and physiologically different are two different things. Yep, you betcha. And, and for example, in our studies, we noticed that uh, when we fed egg and whey, they were never statistically different in, in, in muscle protein synthesis. Never. But every single time, whey was about 5% better. Every time we tested it. Every time. And even, even though the statistical difference in each individual study, there was never any statistical difference, I would be willing to go to the bank that there's a 5% physiological difference. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, is that 10%, you know, difference or 5 to 10% difference? Is that important for the average person? No, absolutely not. But for a bodybuilder, it probably is. It probably is different. So, you know, and if you look at the, if you look at the curve, they actually drew an, in their study. It was very nice. They drew a nice, a nice uh, um, curve plotting the doses and plotting the protein synthesis response. It's basically an asymptote. You know, you, you, it gets a little better at each dose above a certain breakpoint, but the like you said, it's diminishing returns. But there's still returns. You know, and I, I bet. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know Stu real well, and I, you know, I don't. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Um, but I, I bet he would he would even acknowledge that, you know, there probably is a difference from 20 to 40 grams. It's just not real huge, and for the average person, probably doesn't matter. Yeah, I, yeah, I think about two things, too. It's funny that you're saying that because I remember early work from Tarnopolsky when he was doing just, you know, he was starting to do some of the stable isotopes, I don't know, N15 work or whatever it was. 
and he was, you know, it was that grams per kg. I still remember the sort of classic graph in my head. And there wasn't a statistically significant jump between like 1.6 and 2.4 grams per kg per day or whatever. But quantitatively, there was, in fact, a small improvement. And I think yeah. like you do. Well, I'll take that few percent. You know, it's almost the same thinking. Uh, so and, you know, the other thing, too, I think listeners could be aware of is that Sometimes you have to, I mean, there's a lot of control issues, methodological issues in some of these studies too, because one of the things I've noticed in, in some of Stu's work, and, and I've, 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 I remember seeing Stu even before he graduated back up at a bunch of Canadian conferences and stuff, and he's a great guy. But, mm-hmm. uh, in some of his studies, like he'll suggest at times that, for example, at more advanced weightlifters don't need more protein at all and things like that. But when you go look, he's feeding those guys like 3,500, 4,000 calories a day. And, right. you know, and not everybody does that, even if you try. I mean, that's a real effort. And I don't know how you feel, Lane, but or or Rob probably takes in 5,000 easy. I don't know. But we all talk on this show a lot about the battle of the knife and fork. It is hard to eat that much energy. And if you don't, you know, that's one of the, you know, one of those huge things you've got to consider when you when you think about protein dose. Uh, so anyway, it, it, it's, it's Certainly, cool to think about um, Certainly, I mean, the, the the two large driving factors for anabolism are calories and, and protein in adults. In, in, in younger kids, insulin makes a, a bigger difference, but in adults, insulin is less important. But definitely, if you're not getting enough cal- if you're not getting enough calories, it it doesn't really matter what you do. Um, your body is going to be catabolic. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and. and See, here's, here's the thing I, I talk to people a lot about. Uh, people will say, well, I don't pay attention to research because one study says one thing and one study says another thing, and so they don't know what they're talking about. I say, look, science doesn't lie. Okay, it does, it, it, it's not wrong. It's, the problem is the studies either aren't designed or they're not interpreted correctly. You know, a lot of people will just go through and they'll read abstracts and they'll read a conclusion and they'll say, okay, well, they concluded this. Well, if you didn't read the methods, you're just taking their word for it because that conclusion is just an opinion. That's all it is. It's a peer-reviewed opinion, but it's still an opinion. And you know, for for example, let's let's look at Stu's study. And they, you know, they they measured protein synthesis post-workout, okay, and then extrapolated that to other meals. Now, I'm not saying I think that study's garbage or anything. I think it's a great study. I think it's fantastic, but. You can't necessarily take what's going on in a post-resistance train period and apply that to all the other meals of the day. Post-exercise, you're probably more sensitive to anabolic stimuli, and it might not take as much protein to max out protein synthesis, whereas at other points of the day, it may take more protein or it may take less protein. But it's it's you know you, you're not you're not going to you have to look at the control group, you have to look at how the study is designed, and say okay, how what is the interpretation, you know, and so. A lot of times when people just read blurbs in magazines where one study says one thing, one study says another thing, a lot of times the studies don't say different things. It's just the overall conclusion says the same thing and it's misinterpreted. Right. Absolutely. You sound like a, you sound like a professor, Lane. Like, that's a, that, that's the stuff that I tell students all the time. The, the evening news is going to – they just jump to the results and educated people oh. say – how do you get there? How do you measure it? Or in who? You know, what population? You got to think about the methods because that's right. If you're talking about advanced weight trainers who are well fed, 
or yeah, different times of the day. Uh, oh, there's so many other things to consider. And what happens is, you're right, you get a journalist or something get a hold of that, and they try to over-conclude to make it more exciting, and that, in effect, kind of makes it wrong. So, well, I, And journalists in particular only care about epidemiological studies, which drives me nuts. As if they were cause and effect, right? Yeah, Exactly. Because that's – honestly, that's the only thing they think the average public understands. So they're like, oh, people who uh, took this had a higher rate of cancer. You know, the best – the best way you can – if you want to tell somebody how much those studies mean, just just explain to them that in the summer months, murder increases. The rate of murder increases. And in the summer months, ice cream sales also increase. So based on this logic, ice cream sales are causing increases in murder. Right. So right. you hear that? All you guys selling ice cream out there, according to these, these scientific journalists, you are the ones that are responsible for our higher murder rates. So shame on you. Right. You Not know, cause and effect, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's a very <laughs> big difference. Well, you know, just yesterday, and again, I'm I'm not in your both Lonnie and you know Wayne's league here, but you know, just yesterday on the news, they were talking about how, you know, some research showed that, um, I don't know, at KFC, they're um, double down or something, some I don't know, highly fried sandwich or something, was actually had contained more cholesterol or some or, or it had less cholesterol or something than than egg. Yolks, and that therefore it would be safer just to have this KFC thing. You know, I, I know this is off track a little bit, but I think Don't that's those things with the, the bun is made out of meat. <laughs> Aren't those yeah, the things? That, that that is a, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've sandwich. never had one. I don't really know what it's about, but I think that's it's something. Brilliant. Uh, and when I was watching this again, I'm, I'm coming from a, a very primary way, you know, from, from you guys like you. I don't know what I'm really talking about, but I'm just watching this and listening to these journalists talk about this. I'm thinking, well, there's something wrong here. Like they're not. Well, I mean, there's got to be something wrong there. Cholesterol, in particular. I mean, I could spend. Layman actually is, is has very well versed me in in a lot of the cholesterol research. Even though I'm not a, a specialist in blood lipids or anything, that research, oh, man, without pissing off a lot of people, which this will probably do if they if they listen. The cholesterol research and how it got started was so biased from the beginning. Basically, what happened was they took a section of people. I mean, this was a classical nutrition study done way back in the day. And they said, okay, we know, we know these people that have higher risks of heart disease have higher cholesterol. We know that high cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease. Um, saturated fat increases cholesterol, and thus saturated fat increases the rate, risk of heart disease. And they have spent billions of dollars trying to prove that, and they can never prove it. They've never been able to prove it. As much as it's accepted for fact, they've never proved it. And they've never proved that eggs are a risk factor for heart disease, ever. Um, and the other thing is, too, your blood cholesterol is, is very, very – it's actually very small, the amount of influence nutrition has on it. the overriding factor is genetics and liver production of cholesterol. You bet, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's you, everybody knows somebody who eats, you know, like garbage and they have a cholesterol under 150. You know what I mean? Right. And then everybody knows. I know people who eat, you know, cleaner than you can imagine. They have cholesterol over 250. You know, um, it's just if you live, if you have the type of genetics where your liver produces more cholesterol, you're going to have high cholesterol. Yeah. Um, Nutrition only changes it very, very moderately. Yeah, especially uh -huh. dietary cholesterol. I mean, a lot of Canadian uh, recommendations, they don't even say watch dietary cholesterol because the impact on serum cholesterol is almost nil. 
you know. Yeah, it's it's very very small. My my friend, uh, he has high cholesterol, and uh, he's a bodybuilder, and he eats. He's a he's a he's an MD, or I'm sorry, he's a DO. He's a he's a doctor, mm-hmm. and he he eats extremely clean. And he's like, you know what? When I go from off season to in season, so he got you know his cholesterol test when he's taking in four thousand calories as opposed to you know twenty five hundred, and like a two percent drop. That was it. Yeah. You know, and that that's going from him eating, you know, kind of dirty in the off season a little bit to super clean, calorie restricted, and it hardly it hardly affected it, you right. know. So that the cholesterol research is really overblown and they're actually starting they're actually they're actually the intelligent people in the community in the scientific community are starting to you know, their science is what we know in terms of science and what gets accepted for print in science for, for, for general consumption by the average public is about 20 year gap, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so we're just now starting, you know, the ADA is just now starting to say, you know, those high carb, high grain diets we suggested, those might not be so good. Really? <laughs> you just figured that out now? Right. But the bodybuilders who noticed that are, you know, 15, 20 years ago or more, they were just meatheads. You know, so, but any, you know, I want to touch on one thing before I, we're almost out of time here, but one thing I, Lane, you're probably familiar with uh, some of the work like that Steve Reichman did from Kent State. And I, I I don't know if you know Ben Hartman, who was one of my grad students. uh, I I, I will actually be competing with Ben here in a couple weeks, but he, I assume the pro universe. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if his thesis is still going to be this, but we have some pretty cool data, uh, we're looking at cholesterol as a driver of muscle mass, and Steve Reichman did hmm. a lot of that stuff too. So imagine cholesterol as a as a potential good guy, and what's the like you said? What's the likelihood of seeing that in print? Because that would just oh, confuse God. the hell out of people. And oh. yet the research is there. Are, there are some pre- have fun with that. Getting that in peer reviewed journals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I think some of that stuff's really and actually, Lane, you and I need to sit down and talk for about three frickin' hours because I'm doing a lot of stuff, a lot of work with protein safety, the effect on kidneys and bones and stuff. And uh, oh, it's like beating your head against the wall. Oh, it, 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 and it, anyway, it's 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 fun stuff. But I wanted to ask you one thing before we're done, and that's uh, back to the leucine thing. Is how do you think that bodybuilders should best use that? Is its role more in you know, off season and you're adding it to additional protein shakes or is it more likely that it's a, a it's a dieting technique where you would almost do semi fasting and then just hit, you know, bits of leucine throughout the day? I think What's your uh, take I, on that uh, without getting like you said, you're almost out of time. So I'll make it brief. And, you know, it'll be one of those things where I can't explain it too much. I'll just say take my word for it. Uh, we found that um, uh, actually adding in leucine in between meals, eating a little bit less frequently, but adding leucine in between meals actually uh, amplifies the anabolic response to a meal. Uh, there's, there's what's called a refractory response of protein synthesis. Um, after you eat a meal, you, you don't – basically after you eat a meal, there's a certain point at which protein synthesis drops back off even though amino acid levels are still elevated. If you add supplemental leucine, it seems like you can overcome that. And so you actually get a potentiation of muscle protein synthesis by adding in leucine, you know, maybe like two hours after a meal and then like two hours before your next meal. Um, dieting, I think it's more useful as a tool because we like, you know, when you're in the off season, you're getting so many calories, you're, you're really kind of optimizing everything. I still think it's, it's useful, but uh, in the, when you're dieting, 
basically what you can do is you can keep your protein a little bit lower, keep your total calories a little bit lower, but you're still getting more anabolic bang for your buck because, you know, leucine has, per gram leucine is going to have a bigger anabolic impact than per gram of other calorie sources. Right. So, you know, I still, I think, you know, maybe like um, three, four grams of leucine in between uh, each meal and then like three or four grams post-workout and you, you'd really get the, the maximal benefits out of it. I mean, this is all just theory. I, I've never done a controlled study on this. But sure. Based on what I know about protein metabolism and what we found in our labs, I think that's a good way to use it for bodybuilders looking to maximize muscle mass. So if I can just summarize, you're talking about three squares, like a breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then snacks in between and post-workout or maybe bedtime as well, just, yeah. just two or three grams of leucine. I'll tell you what I do. Uh, I eat formula. I think most people eat too frequently, to, but that's a whole other bag of worms. I think most bodybuilders eat way too frequently, uh, and I think it's actually counterproductive. But I eat four meals during the day, and I eat one meal at night. I have to wake up to go to the bathroom every night, so I just chug a shake when I get up. And in between each of those meals, I'll have you know two hours after one meal, two hours before another meal, I'll have three or four grams of leucine. In the off season, I'll have a little bit. Of, I'll have some carbs with it, so I spread out my calories a little more, make it easier because it's hard to get in four thousand calories in four meals. Yeah. Um, but in and then in, in, in when I'm dieting for a show, I'll just have just you know just branch chains or just leucine. So you know have it you know halfway in between each set of meals, and then I have it you know right after my workout, and uh, that has worked very very well for me for putting on muscle in the off season and and, and maintaining muscle in uh, pre contest. Awesome. Just one question. Um, sure. Leucine in and of itself, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if, if a guy just tried to take leucine, I mean, it's it's essentially going to be kind of useless without other amino acids taken in during the day. Correct. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got to eat, I mean, you've yeah. got to eat enough total protein because you need the building blocks for – so. To, there's two aspects of synthesis. You've got to stimulate synthesis to get the machinery going, but you need the building blocks to actually synthesize more protein. Now, the amount of protein you're going to need as building blocks isn't a whole lot because the maximum amount of net synthesis you're going to get per day is probably 10 grams of muscle tissue, if that, if you're lucky. Um, but so yeah, you do need a total. You need, need enough total protein. But, I mean, for most bodybuilders, that's not going to be a problem. Most I would say even though I'm a big proponent of high-protein diets, I'd say a lot of bodybuilders overconsume protein. You know, there's guys that say, oh, well, if, if one gram per pound is good, then five grams per pound must be even better. Nah, you, 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 there is definitely, I mean, even though I talked about getting a little better with higher doses, there's definitely a cap. And I think there's probably a point at which you actually impair your gains because you're robbing calories from carbs or fats that at a certain point are more useful than the extra protein. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought you might ask that, Phil. I remember you, you kind of speculating on that before, like how much of leucine almost as a drug to stimulate protein synthesis yeah. versus the other amino acids for the building blocks to put it all to work, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, essentially the way I kind of look at it from, well, I listened to Lane's talk with you at the uh, ISSN a couple years ago, I guess now was kind of like looking at leucine. If, if we had a power cord running to a light bulb and there's a light switch in between, leucine is essentially the light switch. Yes. If there's no power actually running in the line, it doesn't matter if we turn the damn light switch on. 
<laughs> That's right. And it's this it's actually the same thing with calories too. If your if your calories are too low, it impairs the stimulation. All right, good answer. Okay, everybody, uh, we are out of time. So I wanted to thank Lane uh, before we go. So thanks for coming on, Lane. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me. I had a time. Sorry about the uh, the noise in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no sweat. And right. uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. Oh, thank you guys. Yeah. Okay, and just a quick announcement as we wrap up here for listeners: our our October contest is over. About um, you know. Send in your guilty pleasures about what, what machines that you really like. You know, if you're going to stray from squats and benches and deadlifts, you know, what machines really hit the sweet spot. We got some good entries uh, in that contest, and we'll announce those probably next time. Hey, Iron Radio listeners. This is John Mike. I just wanted to tell you about the American Society of Exercise Physiologists. It's pleased to announce the 2011 National Meeting on September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This will actually be the fourth time the National Conference has been held here in Albuquerque. This three-day event will be held at the Radisson Hotel and Water Park, New Mexico Sports and Wellness, and the University of New Mexico, and partly hosted by the Exercise Science Program here at the University of New Mexico. Go to www.ascp.org to learn more about this exciting conference. Thanks so much. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website. Click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got T-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.